they couldn't treat his cancer anymore, that it was terminal. And I said, what are your priorities in the time you have left? What's important to you? And he said, um, to be strong. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, to live fully till I die. Welcome to Compassion, Courage, Consolation. Voices for St. Vincent's during COVID-19. In this podcast, we're talking to people who love St. Vincent's, love our staff and love the service we provide in health and aged care. We're doing this to support our compassion for one another and those we serve, to bolster our courage in this extraordinary time and to provide consolation amidst the challenges we're facing. And whilst prepared for St. Vincent's, we're sharing this series with anyone who might find it helpful. If you're joining us from outside of our services, consider yourself part of the family. You're very welcome indeed. My name is Dan Fleming. I lead ethics and formation for St. Vincent's. And in this episode, it's a joy for me to welcome Arnand Anderson, who is pastoral care associate at St. Vincent's Private Hospital Northside in Queensland. Arnand, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. G'day, Dan. It's, uh, it's great to be here. And um, yeah, looking forward to having a good chat. Fantastic. Me too. And I know our listeners will be looking forward to hearing from you as well. And Anand, I wonder if I could just start with a question of comparisons. How has your role as a pastoral care associate changed over the past few months uh, as the COVID pandemic has arrived on our shores? And how's the life of the hospital changed? Um, probably a couple of things. Certainly the stress level has gone up in the hospital between between staff, um, their concerns initially around um, what would happen if we were overwhelmed by COVID patients. And then as the uh, elective surgeries were cut out, um, staff numbers having to be reduced. So then mm. other stress levels of, will I have a job? Is my, you know, my husband's lost a job? Will I have a job? So that created a, certainly a level of anxiety and I think my role there and for our whole team in pastoral care was a heightened awareness of how do we support the staff. I'd often sort of go up to staff and say, oh, just, you know, how are you doing? And the initial response was, oh, yeah, I'm okay. And then I'd ask them, oh, how's your family doing? How's your life at home? And then this whole story would unfold. Oh, my husband's lost his job or I'm finding it really stressful with the kids. Um, so it was, it was interesting to give them space to just explore that and have somebody listen. I think too for um, the wondering um, for patients, how they were, their level of stress also went up, mm. even though we'd say, you know, often being in a hospital was probably the safest place for them to be, especially here because we weren't taking in any COVID patients at that stage and don't have any plans to at the moment either. But because hours of visiting were restricted, so they weren't getting the visitors, mm. and so their sense of aloneness and isolation increased. Um, they also had their level of stress with their diagnosis. You know, were they going to get well, not knowing? And, um, yeah, being cut off from people who cared for them. And so our role increased there just to have somebody to go and talk to and that would listen to them. Uh, most people seem to really 
appreciate it even more. It's interesting, isn't it? Because and your particular focus in pastoral care is, um, whereas so much of the focus around COVID has been uh, caring for the bodies of the people in, infected, and rightly so, uh, who, whose bodies are in a state of trauma and crisis and who we need to throw everything we can in terms of our medical care towards them to uh, hopefully restore them to health. The pastoral care focus... Uh, looks more to the whole person. So what's going on for you as a whole person? Um, and it's fascinating to me what you say there, that both both staff and patients are suffering effects not so much of disease but of what's happening out in the community and what's happening for their families and what's happening in terms of isolation and so on. Yeah, there's a, I mean, that huge level of uncertainty in the unknown uh, as well, Um you know, will will my job be stable? Will my hus- mm. husband get an, another job? Um, and I was talking to a patient with cancer and it's very interesting. They said, um, what everybody's going through out there is what I went through when I got my diagnosis of cancer. Wow. And they explained it as, you know, with the diagnosis of a life-threatening illness, um, the ground is pulled from under you. Um, the world you knew is suddenly gone. Uh, the way you were in the world is no longer there. Uh, your identity's changed. You don't know what the next day is going to bring. And often a sense of, of being, feeling helpless mm-hmm. and powerless and not in control. And I thought it was a very powerful insight of, yeah, this is what we're all going through now trying to grip, have control back and struggling and not knowing where, how long is this going to last? Will it end? Will we have our life back? Um, and in a sense, I, I don't believe we will. Our lives won't be the same. And uh, I often say to people going through serious illnesses, um, I try and reframe it for them and as they're struggling with what they're experiencing to give them a framework of it's a bit like an initiation. Mm. Um, Different in the sense of a young man who went into in a tribal situation and had to go into the jungle and say fight a lion. There was a container for that and they'd come back to the tribe transformed and recognised as as now as a man. For us, any time we sort of rub up against major change in our life or rub up against death, it's, it's a form of initiation. And um, Francis Weller, a brilliant therapist and, you know, say shaman in the States, talks a lot about this. And um, that journey of change when it's forced on us can be traumatic, as a lot of people in hospital are experiencing and out in the world at the moment. But if we can see it as a form of initiation, that there is a process of transformation. We can't control in the sense of what has happened, but we can control how we respond to it. And that beautiful insight there too that um, this is a time of transformation and also aligned with it a time of uncertainty where there's no container for that time of initiation and transformation as you've put it, Anand, is, uh, adds to the complexity of it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's um, we don't have a strong container. I suppose the government's trying to 
doing a very good job of trying to offer us something, mm. um, having restrictions, you know, isolation, etc. But it's the um, certainly the sense of the unknown. Mm. I, I think what we can there's a possibility of uh, if we as a culture uh, can hold it as a as a community, support the process, and when we come out the other side. I would love it if we could do communal rituals where we could honour what we've been through mm. and, uh, and name the experiences and see what is maybe now possible. Mm. But to, to add ritual to that, I think, could uh, ground it and help us integrate. Um, what they may look like, I'm not sure. Each group could do it differently. But if there was more awareness and intentionality, this journey of COVID could be quite powerful in in how we transform individually and as a society. Yeah, and it, it strikes me as you say that, Anand, how we've been um, lamenting and grieving the loss of many rituals uh, during this time uh, because of necessary isolation. Uh, so many of the things that we probably didn't even know that we held so dear, the rituals that make up our everyday life, have gone missing. And, yeah, we, we really feel that absence, don't we? It's not just absence uh, from the presence of others, but absence from those constructs which make, make meaning of our reality. And I love that suggestion that looking forward we might have opportunities to um, ritualise uh, what it is we've been through and, and where to from here. And, and thinking in, in terms of the community, you and your peers really get to know our patient community very well and you've given us some some insights into t in terms of what the patient community is facing at the moment any other reflections on what they're experiencing at this time and in particular how they're responding um i suppose i've into some of that but definitely i think there can be increases levels of anger and i remember reading recently that uh, where there's lots of anger um, you need to ask people what they're grieving and in a sense, what have we lost? And it's, again, that sense of um, often desperation of, you know, a, a, a young woman, say, with cancer has three, three young children and um, the restrictions on uh, them visiting and um, her main priority, knowing that she has maybe a month to live, um, the impact that has on the family and the patients. But fortunately, for instance, the hospital here being able to be recognise the, the limitations but also being able to be flexible mm. to support her um, in a way that's compassionate, which I think is so important. Mm. Yeah, definitely I think the lack of control and the, uh, the deep grief that people are going through on so many levels, that is multiplied. Mm. Not only have they lost their sense of wellness and um, and who they were as a healthy, normal person, being a patient in a hospital, but their their social connections mm. have been have gone as well. And I think we our wellness is so important. To get well, we have to be in community. We we need support from people who love us and care for us. Um, and I often wonder what if this was to imagine to go on for you know I don't know how long, but let's hope it's not going to. That 
research that would might show up the effect that this has had on people's heal, wellness and healing ability. Um, yeah, it could be very, very interesting. Mm. And Anand, in, in that space, what are your particular concerns at this time? For me, um, initially when all this happened, my main, I thought, oh, look, I'll be happy just to get it, get it over and done with, develop immunity and just get on with my life. But I noticed that as obviously the, the reality of how dangerous it is came up, um, I, you know, I thought I'd prefer not to. But my main concern of being at work here is that if I was to get it, I could bring it to work and infect patients and other staff. So that actually became more of a heightened anxiety and talking to colleagues, a similar thing, not wanting to infect others. Um, so that's, that's certainly around. Um, yeah, it's... And wondering, yeah, how... The, the, the added stress level of how to support staff um, and families and patients at this time. Uh, I'm, not, I'm really aware I had a, uh, gave myself a two weeks holiday before Easter and I, during that time I gave myself an eight-day silent meditation retreat. I did it from home. Mm-hmm. And um, there was no, I had no phone, no internet, for those eight days and actually the day I finished I, I still didn't want to turn them on because I I wanted a break yeah. and it was it was incredible having the relief from no news and I was in this COVID free world and coming back in and turning on my devices again just noticing my stress level go up and I thought wow it's when you're in it swimming in it you don't tend to notice the anxiety level you exist in but having the break and coming back, it's like this information constantly coming at me and having to be on alert all the time at some level. I thought, oh, this is really interesting just to notice that. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that is very interesting. And there, there's something peculiar in our consciousness, isn't there, that we feel almost a duty to keep up to date with everything, um, as if there's some sort of moral demand to know what the latest figures are and so on. And yet at the same time, the constant um, consuming of information about what's happening uh, itself becomes a stress which might make us less able to do what it is that we should be doing and maybe the small beautiful um, contribution we can make to healing at, at this time. Anand, I wondered if we could just uh, take a step back for a moment um, and thinking about your long and beautiful time in the St Vincent's family, is there a story that comes to mind for you which holds together those themes of the podcast, compassion, courage and consolation? One that stands out for me is... Um the journey of a, a young couple. They were in their um, early 30s. It was about early 30s. And the I'll call them, this isn't their real names, but I'll call them, say, Bill and Jane. Mm. And um, Bill had a had started coming in for treatment for, for cancer um, about a year before, uh, about 12 months ago, and they thought it would be okay and started a, a, some quite number of rounds of chemotherapy and and about a, uh, oh, about two months before Easter or so he um, 
they realised the cancer treatment wasn't working and that um, he actually didn't have long to live. And his girlfriend at the time, uh, they'd been going out for about uh, 14 months. So she started going, they started going out about a month or so, two months before he was diagnosed with cancer. And I think one of the, where their journey for me is so powerful is um, their deep commitment and love for each other. And Jane's decision to um, be totally committed to to Bill, and knowing he has cancer, uh, chose to walk with him on his journey, mm. and was by his side constantly. And for me, the the courage to do that, and the deep compassion. For me, compassion is is love in action, mm. and being service of, to others. And she um, she journeyed with him, and um, I think it was about three weeks or a month before he died, they decided to get married, and they let all the staff in the hospital know, and they managed to get an organisation. I think it's. Uh, I forget the name of it, but this woman set it up to support people in this situation Mm. and she creates everything so the wedding will happen. Wedding wish, I think it might be. Amazing woman. And they had this wedding and he was discharged and uh, went home. They had the marriage with friends, celebrated, and a few weeks later he died at home. Um, I'm just uh, feeling a lot of that at the moment. Uh, I had the privilege later to go to the funeral. And, yeah, their commitment. And I remember asking Bill um, when he'd been told finally that uh, they couldn't treat his cancer anymore, that it was terminal. I said, what are your priorities in the time you have left, what's important to you? And he said, um, to be strong. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, to live fully till I die. And he did. And uh, not everybody chooses to die that way. I often say to patients, like, dying is a verb. It's something we do. It's not a passive thing. We often think it happens to us. But to die is a verb, and we can choose how we do it. Mm. And um, he, he chose how to do it, and he did it extraordinarily well. Wow. What, a, what an incredible story, and Thank you so much for sharing that. It, it also speaks volumes to me of, um, I mean, you, you talk about compassion as love in action, but also um, compassion as the courage to live lovingly even in the face of death and to place love above all other things. Uh, it's as if the 
confrontation with one's mortality impels us to think deeply about what do I want to live for and Mm. what are my ultimate values and what kind of person am I going to be knowing that there's not an infinite future in front of me and for Bill and Jane it's so accentuated but what a beautiful set of choices they made and what a beautiful set of virtues they exemplify they witness to in their life don't they yeah they're an extraordinary couple I, and I often think at this time with um, with COVID, we're, people are being faced with the possibility of, of death being more more imminent. Mm. It's closer. They, they're knowing people, especially in other countries where people are, a lot of people are actually dying. We've been blessed here with so few. Um, but it's much more in our face. And um, I think with our med- medical technology, we can... Uh, we believe that we can avoid it and we can maybe even become gods and maybe live forever, mm. sort of in a mythical way. But um, I think we're, my journey around exploring death has certainly been about uh, when I embrace it more fully, I actually, it's about living life more fully. Yes, it, it picks up on so many great uh, religious and secular traditions of reflecting on mortality, doesn't it? That whereas the dominant disposition in our culture tends to be, let's not think about that, let's live as if uh, we'll kind of live forever, there is a recognition that uh, as I, the subject, recognize that my life has an end, I suddenly wake up to the beauty of this moment and the things that I'm challenged to think about, the way I'm spending my time, the way I'm Mm. turning up in relationship, the kind of person I'm going to be. Um, It's it's a real wake-up call. And I think this goes back to one of your earlier points, Arnand, that uh, at this moment in time we are being forced to think more deeply about those things that are of eternal importance to us, not just important in a moment in time. Yeah, definitely. And on, on that point, what consoles you? What gives you courage and what helps you to continue to be compassionate? I think my spiritual practices, and what I mean by spiritual practice is um, doing, having a practice that nurtures my spirit and um, for some people that might be, you know, walking the dog, going for a swim. Um, for me, I have a daily meditation practice and yoga practice. Um, and uh, and I, I, I was sort of brought up a Catholic, went, had a Jesuit education. And uh, during my journey, I identify more now as a Buddhist. Mm. And that's mainly come through my meditation training. And... Uh, and I think the Buddhist concept of um, of impermanence, and Buddha often talked about the uh, some of the core reasons we suffer in life as humans is because um, of our attachment to things, and uh, or our aversion to things, or our delusion around things, and and that the, the core essence of um, we hope things won't change. We, we want things to stay the same. Mm. And when we're attached to that, we, we suffer. And the more attached to things, the more grief we will experience. That's not to say that when a loved one dies that we shouldn't grieve. But 
if we believe that they should never have died, then our grief will be extreme. Mm. But to hold, how, yeah, to have that sense of um, everything is impermanent. And I think when I notice myself suffering, I'll often ask, where is that coming from? You know, what am I attached to? What, are, what do I not like? What am I hating at the moment? What am I confused about? And it'll give me a framework. And I've also, um, I have a number of really close friends who I debrief with and who I, I, I can share deeply. And it's sort of like, for me, it's like soul food at that level. Mm. And I feel really nurtured and nourished by that. And um, I've also really got into being more kind to myself. And I, again, at, um, I remember a story of um, the Dalai Lama at a, one of his mind and life seminars where he gets together with scientists and philosophers. And there was one years ago in the States and he was asking a Western psychologist to define what he understood compassion was. And he said also being about, you know, being um, kind and loving to others. And, and then Dai Lama asked him, but what about compassion to yourself? And the guy said, well, we, it's mainly we focus on others first. And the Dai Lama said, well, how can you really be compassionate to others if you're not compassionate to yourself? And I've never forgotten that. Mm. And because I, I, I've sort of, in my life, I, I think I developed a, from the University of Life a PhD in self-criticism. <laughs> And I think as I shared that with a lot of people, they've often said, yeah, I agree, I've got the same degree. And so I've part of the way I nurture and nourish myself is being more kind and noticing when my critic comes up and just uh, catching it. And I just simply say, may I, be, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be well, may I be happy. And um, something shifts and I just settle. And I don't go down the black hole. Um, another thing I remember from Graham Long, who was now the ex-CEO of the Wayside Chapel in Sydney, a, a place where to um, a community place that cares for the homeless people in the streets around the King's Cross of Sydney. And I went to one of his Christmas um, luncheons where they have a big street thing every year with tables and they have the, the, the um, street choir and... And he was giving his homily, which lasted about three minutes, um, which is the type of homily I like. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, um, we're, we're all surrounded by the awesome. We just need to slow down to notice it because it's around us everywhere. Mm. And then he finished off by saying, and we also need to know that everyone is necessary and significant. As everybody here at Wayside, the people that visit, the staff, everybody is necessary, necessary and significant, but no one is central. Mm. And I found it very powerful. It's like at work here that everybody, all the staff here are necessary and significant, but nobody's central. Yeah, so I try and remember I have a certain role here. I'm, uh, I'm necessary and significant, mm. but I'm, I'm not central. 
and uh, yeah, I find that very helpful. Yeah, what a what a beautiful set of reflections, Arnon. Thank you so much for that. And you used the word soul food uh, during that reflection, and I have no doubt that uh, our listeners hearing from you today is going to be soul food for them. Is there anything you'd like to say to all of our St Vincent staff at this time across the nation? My deep appreciation for um, the work they do. I think um, on so many levels, the willingness to turn up each day. Sometimes, you know, days can be hard, but to, um, yeah, the appreciation for the community, the family that I'm part of with St Vincent's. Um, yeah. And I think too, to um, that sense of, there's something about being courageous when we turn up for work. But for me, I love the thing about Brene Brown. She talks about um, to be courageous means to be vulnerable. Mm. And our, our patients are always in a place of deep vulnerability. They're in the unknown. They're scared. They're anxious. They're isolated. And if we can recognise that in them, even sometimes when we can find some people challenging, but to recognise that they're in a place of deep vulnerability and if we can meet them in our own vulnerability, we meet each other in places of deep courage. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's really powerful. I would actually wouldn't mind sharing a poem that, for me, taps into the concepts of compassion and kindness and also the impermanence of life. Um, Please do. Um, it's one I came across a number of years ago and I, a friend sent it to me and it really impacted on me. And it's called Kindness by an amazing poet called Naomi Shihab Nye. And the idea of this poem came to her when she was actually on a bus and makes reference to this in the poem. But she was on a bus and she in America going through the desert and as they drove by she saw an old Indian wrapped in a white poncho dead by the side of the road and that was the the germ that inspired this poem so kindness before you know what kindness really is you must lose things Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with dreams and with the simple breath that kept him alive. 
Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice carries the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Arnold Anderson, this has been a beautiful conversation and that poem was a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today and for sharing with all of our listeners. It's been a privilege, Dan, and um, yeah, thank you for the invitation. Have a great day. You've been listening to Compassion, Courage, Consolation. Voices for St Vincent's during COVID-19. This podcast series has been developed by St Vincent's Health Australia. For more information about St Vincent's, visit www.svha.org.au. The music for this podcast comes from Kevin McLeod. His track, Bittersweet, let us in, and you can hear his track, Touching Moments, one now. Kevin's website is incompetech.filmmusic.io and the music is brought to you under the Creative Commons 4.0 license. All of this information and more is provided in the text accompanying this podcast. Thanks for listening.